Welcome to Freeman on Real Estate, the podcast about the hard facts behind what's going on in real estate. Realtor Mike Freeman of Coldwell Banker, who holds an MBA in finance, draws from his financial background and deep network to bring the most value for anyone looking to buy, sell, rent, or invest. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Freeman on Real Estate. This is David Yaz of the Boston Podcast Network here in our Westwood Mass studios with Realtor Mike Freeman. How are you doing today, Mike? Fantastic, Dave. How are you? Pretty good. Pretty good. So today is yet another topic that is just a core vital thing you need to know when selling your home. And that is, what is your home really worth? And we're going to get into all kinds of concepts that may be confusing to you. They're confusing to me personally, so I'm looking forward to learning about it. But one value might be one amount, and your house might be worth something else if we're talking about a different kind of value, and Mike's going to sort that all out. I understand you got this inspiration from a specific source. Yeah, so I'm thinking about what I want to talk about in the podcast earlier today, and I'm thinking, okay, I talked about this, I talked about that, I'm going through a list in my head, and I'm kind of stuck. So I called this friend from college, one of my best friends from college, this guy, Joe. Mm. And I said, Joe, what do you think? What are some topics? And he gave me this topic about values and all the different values that are out there and, and how I can help somebody go through all of those and, and come up with something that is meaningful and, and best price for them to list their house. So I'll give Joe the credit. Mm. All right. Where did you guys go to school? Brandeis. Oh, hey. Go judges. Yep. <laughs> I, this is an aside, but my friend, a guy named John Wasserman, Sharon guy. No, anyway, he went no. to, he went to Brandeis. Oh, yes, I do know John. You know yeah. John, yeah. yeah. So he credits himself, and I think he's telling the truth, when he was a sports reporter for Brandeis, the Brandeis newspaper, he started calling the gym the courthouse, judges courthouse. Mm. <laughs> I did not know that. <laughs> I never heard that term. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So maybe it didn't catch on like you thought. Okay. So, well, thank you, Joe, for the idea. So where to, where to begin here, Mike? So we, we, you think your house is, maybe the place to begin is you know, most people have some conception of what their house is worth because it gets appraised every, well, it doesn't get appraised every year, right? But there's an appraised right. value that, that determines your taxes. Most people pay attention to that, right? So that's actually assessed value. That's and a, this oh, is, see, I'm so, glad I asked. No, I'm, and I'm glad you said that <laughs> yep. because that is something that a lot of people confuse, especially because they both start with the same letter, appraised yep. value and assessed value. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to talk about, it sounds like a lot, but there are five different values that you could potentially be talking about. Appraised value, assessed value, market value, online value, meaning if you go to Zillow or Redfin, you can just, and, and that's the easiest thing that people can go up and pull up a number. And the last one is what people think their home is worth. Yeah. And those are really five different things. So like I was saying, I think the very first thing people do is, and this helps the last one helps them form their opinion on what their house should be priced at. And, and so now I'm talking about people who it could be anybody, but for the most part, let's assume that it's somebody who's getting ready to sell their house. And so the first thing they're probably going to do is go on different websites and look at what they call the Zestimate or look at Redfin and we do it at Coldwell Banker. And it's actually a pretty easy thing for us to pick apart because the first thing I'll say to people is, oh, Zillow says your house is worth 700000 When's the last time they were in your house? Yeah. So where, where do these online sources get? So the, it's an algorithm. Okay. So they'll look at other houses in the neighborhood, houses of the same size, same number of bedrooms, bathrooms, 
garage. They'll get whatever quantitative information they can, but there's no qualitative information. You could have, the house could be in the worst condition possible, or it could be, could have marble floors from Italy, and they'll right. have no idea. They wouldn't know, right. Okay. So I've seen Zestimates be off by a couple hundred thousand dollars. And so it's something that I usually will tell people that you can, this should be a huge grain of salt mm. because it's, it could be way off and it's just an algorithm. And if you want to keep it in mind as a number, then that's fine. But we're probably going to find something very different. Right. Right. Okay. So then you get to assessed value. So the town or the city that you're in, comes up with a value that they think your house, a value for your property, and they base your taxes on that. So every town or city has a tax rate. Right. And just multiply that by the, the value that the town assigns. Now, how does the town do that? Well, they knock on doors, and I always tell people not to let them in, mm. but you might let some people let them in, and they go through the home. So you don't have to let them in? You do not. Okay. Right. So if... Um, if they come in your home, they're going to take some notes. Oh, you updated the kitchen, you updated the bathroom, whatever it may be. If you don't let them in, they can't do that. So they're kind of going to do what the Zestimate is in that they're going to look at, it's kind of an, it's not, it's not an algorithm, but they don't have much to go on other than the quantitative. And usually people use the number that tax assessments are typically somewhere around 92% of the market value if you actually sold your house. That's a very rough estimate. It could be 70, hopefully it's not 100, but there's certainly situations out there where that ha I have seen that. I've seen situations where somebody is listing the house for less than the tax assessment, very unusual. But the town, could, and that's why the, each town and city has an abatement process. And I went through this once for my, for my house. I thought my tax assessment was too high. I filled in an abatement form. I um, compared my house to other houses in the neighborhood, and they reduced my taxes by $900. So that's a very rough number, but it is what your taxes are based on. So it's a real number. Then there's appraised value, which you mentioned. So an appraiser works for the bank, and they are independent, but a bank hires an appraiser to come in and tell them what they think the value is based on comparables, so in that respect, they do exactly what we do as realtors, but it's also very scientific. So they will show you what the comps are and they'll show you the differences. So let's say you have a garage and your neighbor doesn't. Mm -hmm. So they'll assign like a plus 30,000. Maybe they, maybe you have three bedrooms and they have four. So they get a plus 40,000. I'm making these numbers up. Yeah. So it's very scientific. So for each of the three or four or maybe even five comps that the appraiser picks, they're going to do all those pluses and minuses. And then at the very end, they have supposedly evened out all the differences and they come up with what each of those homes is worth. They take an average. That's the appraised value. It is, like I said, somewhat similar to what we do as realtors in that it's based on comparables and what they recently sold for as opposed to like an online estimate or an, or an appraised value, an assessed value. See, I got that wrong. <laughs> it's easy to mix them up. Yeah, yeah which is based on every house yeah. in the neighborhood. So an appraiser and a realtor will both look at recent sales only. Theirs is a little more scientific with those pluses and minuses. Ours, I like to say, is a little bit of art and a little bit of science because there is art and science that goes into it. And the appraised value is important because a bank may come back and say, 
that let's just say that you bid, let's say the asking price was 600 and you made an offer of 700 and was accepted. And by the way, this is not an extreme example. I've seen 200,000 above ask. Really? Yeah. But let's say a bank comes in and says, the appraiser comes in and says, there's no way this house is worth 700. I could not justify that with any comps or even come close. It's worth 620. Now you have a problem. And the bank is going to say to the buyer, we're not going to give you a loan for a purchase of 700. They're going to give you a loan for whatever percentage you were planning on putting down on 620. And then you have all these different things that need to go through the process. Is the buyer going to put up more cash? Are they going to ask the seller for money? Is the buyer going to try to get money from somewhere else? Is the deal going to fall? Like there's all host of things, which I know we're not talking about today, but there's a lot of things that could happen if it doesn't appraise. And in this market, the last couple of years that we've been in this market, we have seen a decent number of properties. I mean, by decent, I still mean like 5%, but it's not 1% anymore, not appraise. And then you have these problems. Mm -hmm. So, so, so far we talked about the, the online algorithm values. We talked about assessed value, appraised values from an appraiser and the value a realtor will tell you when they go in and make a recommendation on what your house is worth, which I call market value. And then the last thing, and perhaps the most important is what the seller thinks their house is worth, because that's going to be the price that goes into MLS when they sell it. None of these others, even my recommendation, believe it or not, is going to be what somebody puts into MLS. And I always say to people that I make, I make a recommendation. I may make a very strong recommendation and I'm going to justify it with comps and, and reasons behind why those are comps and why yours may be worth more or less. But at the end of the day, you need to tell me what number to put into MLS right. and I'm going to work just as hard for you no matter what that number is. So, that's, um, at the end of the day, that's really what matters the most. And I do tell people that what they want is irrelevant. And I'll put it on me as well. Say what I want, what you want, what your wife or husband may want. None of that matters. It's what a buyer is willing to pay for your house. That's the market value. Right. So I try to have people think about it realistically and, and don't say, well, I want 700 for my house. That may not mean anything. Maybe your house is worth five eighty, right? And and that's when you have very difficult conversations. Does that happen often that you have to talk people down just simply because they see dollar signs? Absolutely. Yeah. And and we say in real estate that oftentimes sellers think that their house is the greatest thing in the world. Yeah. It's the greatest house in the world. I have this. I have that. And you do have a lot of those great things, but. A lot of times people don't necessarily see the negatives and they don't want to think about the negatives. And it may not be a negative. It may be that you have one less full bath or you don't have a garage or the other house has brand new hardwood floors. So it's usually something that is more objective than subjective. And so I can point to that. And it's really hard for the homeowner to say, well, I don't think a garage is important. Well, it is. It's something you have to assign some value to it. So... If what if someone comes to you and says, ah, "I think I really want to put it on at eight fifty, Mike," and you say, mm, "Well, my advice would be that that's too high." And the from all I can tell, we're probably looking at a sale price of more like seven hundred. And the person says to you, "Well, 
What's the harm in putting on at 850? I'll drop it later if I have to. So what I say to people is there's a there's a lot of harm. And we have we have one graphic that we actually show to people. I mean, I do this every time I meet with a, a prospective seller. It's a pyramid. And it shows that if you price to sell, you're at the bottom of the pyramid where you've captured 100% of your buyers. And as you go up in the pyramid, pyramid and your price is higher, the pyramid is narrower because now you are only going to attract 50% of the buyers or 30% of the buyers. So it just shows people that as you price higher, you're now going to have fewer people interested in your house. So yeah, you can lower the price later, but as you accumulate days in the market and as you have multiple reductions, especially in this market, I mean, in this market, people wonder why after a week, if your house hasn't sold, what's wrong with it? So I tell people that you're making a huge mistake, especially in a market like this, where you're probably going to have to do multiple price reductions and you're going to accumulate a lot of days on the market. So we have those discussions a lot. One thing I try to do is I use the phrase, I like to build consensus. I take out my laptop. We look at the comps. I don't just show them on a piece of paper. We look at the pictures and I say, look at this house. Look at these hardwood floors. How would you compare yours? Mm. Look at this kitchen. How would you compare yours? And it, so it puts people in a position where they have to be honest with themselves and honest with the situation. So, and at a certain point, if they're, if they're so unrealistic that you think it's not going to sell and it's going to be a waste of your time, at a certain point, you probably should walk away. And I haven't had to do that yet, but someday I will. Well, to me, this just underscores how important it is to have someone like you because all these different values, it can be, I think, overwhelming to someone. And I, I think you're right. I remember I've sold homes a couple times now, and we always had a conception of the price that was probably too high because everybody hopes they can get more than, right? right. right. I mean, most people anyway, I guess. But you also want, I guess it also depends on what's important to you. Does that go into it like, well, Mike, we, we really want to put this on at a million, but also we got to be out of here by January, right? So does, does that, does the value that you set, you ultimately list the, the house at, something like that go into consideration? Absolutely. Yeah. If people emphasize that they have to sell right away, they need the money to either buy another house, like maybe their purchase is coming up quicker than they thought it was going to, then, yeah, I'll say then you might want to price... 20,000, 25,000 less, and you may get into a bidding war and you may end up getting your price anyway. Mm. So yeah, that, that is absolutely a factor if somebody can be patient or somebody not be patient. Anything else people should know about valuing a home, Mike, or should they really just get in touch with you? I think that the most important thing is you should listen to what your realtor has to say. <laughs> really? I mean, whether yeah. it's me or somebody else. It's because, why you have them. Yeah. Right? I mean, yeah. we do this every day. Right. And think of other professions. You're not going to give yourself your own legal advice. You're not going to perform your own operation. And really, right. you can think about any profession. So listen to your realtor. They know what they're talking about. We, we do this every day. Yeah. I just took my gallbladder out myself yesterday, Mike. I feel great. Yeah, you um, look great, too. <laughs> I'd be dead. We now move to the portion of the program where we learn more about the man behind the realtor in this installment of More About Mike. More about Mike. More about Mike. More about Mike. Well, we've got a question here that I just pulled out of the question bag, Mike, and I think you're going to enjoy it. What is your favorite childhood memory? 
could go in a lot of different directions, but yeah, does one come to mind for you? There really is one that comes to mind. Okay. So we we moved across town when I was nine, and and both both properties, both locations, I have great memories of. But there's one in particular at what I'll call the old house that we lived in from yep. when I was three to nine. So there were there were kids everywhere. And back then, your parents would just yell out, hey, Mike, where are you? And you could just right. yell back. And, yeah. and right. I'm just, over at Billy's. Yeah. Leave me alone, Mike. Yeah. So next door to us, so we were next to a dead end, and we would either be on that dead end with all the kids that lived there, or we'd be on the other side, which was my next-door neighbor's yard, which was just a huge yard, and we played wiffle ball and football, and, and we'd often be there. We'd play um, pickle. Mm. And I just have this memory of this one evening that we were like out in that yard and there's probably 20 kids and we're playing all kinds of games the whole night. And I just have this memory of just being like so happy thinking like this is the greatest thing in the world to just be (laughs) out there with my friends and playing all these different games and I couldn't be any happier. And so I remember that. It's a great one. Almost 50 years ago. Yeah. I mean, I can remember, yeah, same, probably probably 50, almost 50 years ago where I li- I grew up mainly in the town of Sharon, but lived in a couple other places before, and there was a bunch of kids. We lived in Acton, and there was a bunch of kids who would play street hockey seemingly every day. Maybe it was every day. And, and you got to know this was the kid who played goalie, and this was the kid who was the fastest, and and there, there is, I think many of our, much of our generation has those memories. Sadly, it's not that much of a thing anymore. Right. Right. But it, it also sort of goes to show you that you didn't say something like getting your first motorbike or getting Atari or taking a trip to Hawaii with your family, all of which may be very nice. But it, it, not to get too philosophical here, but, you know, they say life is about relationships and that and, and moments and interactions with other people. And so just to hang out with kids, it was a pure joy. Yeah. And you just made me realize something, too. It wasn't a matter of getting something. It right. wasn't a matter of a brand new shiny toy or trip. I wasn't given anything other than this gift of just being blissfully happy because I was hanging out with my friends, yeah. playing games, laughing, and who knows what I was doing. It, it like eight, maybe I was nine. It, it was just the best. You mentioned wiffle ball. I think it's America's greatest sport. Um, it is. <laughs> I just, I've always loved wiffle ball. Not even that I'm that good at it because every time I try to throw, a, a, make it break one way, it breaks the wrong way. But, but it's just such a fun, simple game. And I remember... My friend Lance and I, I think we were in college at the time, maybe like just the week before we were getting ready to go back. Me and my friend Lance were just, hey, you want to go out, get a pizza or something, do something before we go. So, and then for whatever reason, we were like, hey, let's, let's, let's go play wiffle ball. Just that I got a wiffle ball in my, tr- in my trunk. And just the two of us went, we played one-on-one wiffle ball. And that, but of course, even though we're like probably 19 years old at the time, in theory, adult males, we had to make up all these rules. That was part of it, right? You like, have to. like, yeah, like, like, if, if you hit that rock, that's a right. home run. If right. it, and so, I, we remember this little kid came by and he said, "What are you guys doing? Said, we're playing great game wiffle ball." He goes, "Well, how how can you do that? There are only the two of you." And we're like, "Oh, you have no idea." And we told him all the rules, and then maybe he understood. But that that 
required all kinds of creativity and that's that's another thing. It, it, if if you weren't play, if you're not playing a video game, you're playing some of these games. And maybe we played a game called Colors, where you threw the ball in the air and everyone had a different color. And if your color got called, you had to go get that ball and then yell stop. And then there was a whole other set of rules. Kick the can was another one that I never yeah. played. But I, but don't you think that that develops skills? It does. Yeah. The creativity. Yeah. And and. I agree with you. The wiffle ball is the greatest game. I mean, <laughs> I we it. played that yeah. before I moved, after I moved. Mm. But I'll tell you one quick story. We actually, I'm not making this up because mm. you're talking about wiffle ball. Right. We started the wiffle ball club at Brandeis. Oh, really? Yep. I love it. My roommates and I. Yeah. And, and the funny thing is like every club, no matter what, got funding. Oh, yeah. Okay. So right. I don't know what we got. I don't remember. <laughs> it might have been as little as 100 bucks, 50 bucks. But it allowed us to go out and get some wiffle balls <laughs> and get some bats. And we didn't do much. Yeah. But we played some games. We played some wiffle ball. And yep. you had to publicize it. But nobody joined except for us. <laughs> that's terrific. Yeah, 100 bucks could buy a lot of – that buys a lot of wiffle balls. And that's all you need. Yeah. And a bat. Yeah, I, I still – at the, the summer camp where I was a counselor, at one point I was in charge of all the athletics. And it, at camp, wiffle ball is a quote-unquote sport. It's just a game. Yeah. And so – but I have these memories that one year I, I had like the maintenance crew build a kind of miniature green monster. It was always my dream to build. Some people have done this, right? To, right. To buy, wouldn't that be cool to, to build a miniature yes. Fenway Park, but with a ball scale. And uh, so the kids had a lot of fun with that. And I'll, I'll never forget, like, the, like you don't have to be the greatest athlete in the world to be good at wiffle ball. You right? don't. You don't. <laughs> right. And so, one, one other, one last thought that I just uh, came to mind. Yeah. Because we're an official club, the Wiffle Ball Club, we got in the yearbook. <laughs> my, my roommates and I, like six of us, we're in the yearbook, and it says the Wiffle Ball Club. And whenever we're together, we always pull out the yearbook and look at that picture, and we laugh. <laughs> That's great. I picture you guys with, like, a, a too serious look on your face, like, the, this is the fine tradition of Wiffle Ball. <laughs> exactly. I wonder if the Wiffle Ball Club is still there at Brandeis. If not, someone else started up. Exactly. Terrific stuff, Mike. Terrific memories. Great discussion today. If you could, please remind our listeners how they get in touch with you. Sure. So you can either call me at 617-759-1513, or you can email me at mike.freeman at nemoves.com. And I also have a website, mikefreemanhomes.com. Very good. Mike, next time you come in here, I'm bringing the wiffle ball. We'll go out in the parking lot. It sounds good to me. (laughs) Over the... Comella's restaurant out here, that's a home run or maybe a grand slam. And, and if we pick a car that you have to hit for like a home run and they move it, we tell them they can't. Yeah, no, come on. It's the fine tradition of football. Yep. We thank you for listening to Freeman on Real Estate. Check out the whole library. Follow the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your pods. We thank you for listening. Have a great day, everybody.